This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. Hello, this is a Thinkers 50 podcast. I'm Stuart Craner, and our guest today is Dan Pontefract, who's the chief envisioner at TELUS, a Canadian telecoms company, and author of The Purpose Effect, Flat Army, and now Open to Think. Dan, welcome. Stuart, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here in the company of the audience of Thinkers 50. Now, I've enjoyed, I particularly like Flat Army, which is, always struck me as a great title for a book. But The Purpose Effect, Flat Army, and now Open to Think. What, what's the link between the three books? Well, I, I, uh, thank you. I started out back in 2010 thinking about where is our organization today? Where, where's leadership? Where are the people? Where are the employees? And what's, what's going wrong, essentially? Because the same thing's happening today as happened back in 2010, which is leaders are being dictatorial, hierarchical, disengaging, and employees are feeling the brunt of that. So that's kind of book one. Flat Army was an investigation into our culture. Why are we operating as if we are still at Bethlehem Steel with the scientific principles of management from 1912? Taylorism, as some of you may know, as it's referred to as, with a stopwatch, you know, barking orders, trying to get people to build widgets faster in a draconian way. That still manifests in many organizations today. So then, it's like looking around thinking, all right, so who's doing it right? But what else is a link to great culture and that would be the second leg of the stool, so to say, which is the purpose effect. And that is when an organization not only defines its purpose, but enacts its purpose. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't just say it's going to do something. It actually walks the talk. Then ultimately what I found is that employees feel a sense of purpose in their role. And somehow between the organization's purpose, that is they're doing something more than just making money or more than upholding bureaucracy, that they stand for something and they fight for it, whether it's the planet, whether it's society, whether it's community and so forth. Employees really tend to get into that and they say, oh, wow, you know, I, I like working for X or Y. Uh, this is actually serving my self-interest because I'm here to do better for this planet, this community and my life as well. So that's the second leg of the stool, it's purpose effect. But then... Once that was written, and now we're looking at um, the barrel of about uh, 2014, uh, again, I'm like, well, nothing's really changing. So no one's reading these books. That's fine. Uh, organizations still seem to be stuck in this malaise of no culture or bad culture and a lack of purpose. So then I start poking around the edges and thinking, well, is there a third leg to this stool? And this uh, essentially came to be the Open to Think book, which is, um, we are in a society where the age of freneticism, being overly busy, overly distracted, executing at the, at the sort of uh, behest of really good thinking, whether it's creative thinking or critical thinking, is actually impeding the culture. It's impacting the purpose. And I believe, if you will, Stuart, that it's all related. And so, in summary, leg one is about culture, leg two is about purpose, and leg three was an output of the fact that we're still operating with no culture and no purpose. And I believe that our closed thinking, our uh, societal issues of 
always being on and, and addicted to action is actually one of the impediments and detriments to that culture and purpose piece. Yeah, so you're, you're kind of proposing kind of slow thinking. As, it's a bit like the slow, slow, slow food movement, isn't it? Yeah, I would argue it's uh, analogous to that. Although when you ask Michelin five-star chefs if they're into the slow cooking movement, they sort of slap you silly and say, well, wait a second. That's nonsense. I've always been a slow cook movement or slow thinker because, because chefs ultimately are the quintessential example of being open thinkers. They have to go for walks and hikes and chat with farmers and let their minds out of the kitchen to dream up new dishes and, and new tastes. They have to travel. They have to check out. They can't be frenetic all the time. Otherwise, how do they come up with the new dishes? And then similarly, they have to make judicious decisions, both for what the menu may look like, Stuart, as well as when they're in the midst of making the meal, they ultimately have to make changes on the fly because there may be a run on salmon or beef and they're out, or maybe there's a dietary allergy of some sort, or maybe a party of 50 showed up and they didn't expect it, so they got to think on the fly. So those great chefs, not the line cooks, but the great chefs arguably have always been demonstrating, quote, slow cooking. We just haven't appreciated it enough because none of us are really, you know, analyzing what those chefs are in fact doing. You've got a great quote from Socrates in, in the book, beware the barrenness of a busy life. And do you think people are appreciating that, that busyness is often kind of akin to emptiness in, in people's lives? Well, well, first, to be somewhat cheeky and provocative, I don't think people are appreciating Socrates or philosophy in general. Uh, but to answer your question, no. Uh, what really is satisfying to people these days is to fill up the minutes and the nanoseconds with minutiae. So, you know, go to a tube stop uh, these days and... And a physiotherapist could make a gazillion dollars because everyone's neck is faced downwards to the tracks because they're staring at their mobile device. Who's looking up? Who's, who's just pontificating or pondering? And even though you may say, oh, Daniel, that's an easy way to catch up on me emails or, you know, catch up on your Twitter feed. Sure, I'm not, I'm not saying to not use your mobile device ever. But when we start analyzing how we are using our time, we, I find, we are often filling it up with nothingness. And that nothingness is, is akin to action because we're filling up the nothingness with things we think are critically important. Yet we forget that some of the critical importance of our learning, of our competence, of our intellect is in fact releasing ourselves and pontificating and pondering. And that's where great and better decisions occur. Not necessarily in the moment of action, although it does occur, but also when we're reflecting. And ultimately, Stuart, uh, to that Socrates point, that barrenness of a busy life in essence, we have forgotten, or at least we perhaps have to work on the skill of reflection. We're very good at action, but we have some work to do when it comes to reflecting. And how do your ideas relate to something like design thinking or integrative thinking? Is, is, is your open to think uh, concept related to that in any way? 
Well, first of all, uh, a mentor of mine is Roger L. Martin, and he has been uh, not only the number one thinker on the Your Thinkers 50 list uh, currently, uh, he has been just a, a Canadian icon, and I, being Canadian, have befriended him several years ago. He's just been so great to me as a, as a coach, as a mentor, and ostensibly uh, open to think pace homage to design thinking and integrative thinking. Uh, the homage part is that a good design thinker, a good integrative thinker, and we could even wax lyrical about another Canadian, Henry Mintzberg, and his work of, of thinking, uh, is, is that in order to be that design or integrative thinker, you do need time, time cushioning. No one jumps into design thinking. No one jumps into integrative thinking. It's iterative, but it is, includes the aspect of time. What I'm certainly just trying to argue is that from an individual perspective through to the organization. If we contemplate and understand the importance of time as it relates to three types of thinking that are embedded inside of open thinking, which are creative thinking, critical thinking, and of course applied thinking, putting it to action. When we do that and we time cushion it and allow ourselves that responsibility to own our time, yeah, I would argue it does pay homage to design and integrative thinking in that case. Yeah, I wonder if there's a kind of Canadian school. I've never, I've never really thought of it for, before, but is there a link between Henry Mintzberg, Roger Mott, where you, you've made that link, but there's also people like Carl Moore, Don Tapscott. So there's actually quite a group of Canadian thinkers. We feature on Thinkers 50 and within the Thinkers 50 community. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Don has been uh, another coach, idol, if you will, of mine here in the Canadian realm. I mean, Here's a guy that has always pushed the envelope of, I would, I would say, different thinking. You know, he has been ahead of the curve from whether we're referring to uh, millennials back in the day um, or uh, recently, of course, with blockchain. And he's always had this knack for pausing and, and thinking ahead to, well, what, what might be coming and helping not just Canadians, but the world see the world in a different view. So uh, Don's been fantastic and also fantastic personally to me. And Carl, I don't know how many folks know Carl, but anytime you have a coffee with him, it could be a 50 minute coffee, but it's going to turn into an hour and a half because he is so dialed in and plugged into, uh, we, I guess, weaving a quilt of possibility. He's got so many different ideas. And you, again, you spend some time with him where he's reading, or read his uh, writing, I'm sorry, you know, it's just a, it's a cornucopia of options and it's just so much fun when you can spend time with Carl. What kind of reaction do you get from managers when you talk about these issues? I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking of your, your dream decide do kind of uh, uh, formula is not the, not the right word. Uh, but I can see managers kind of rolling their eyes at the idea, idea of dreaming. They're okay on doing, but not so much on the dreaming, the dreaming and uh, <laughs> The deciding is kind of automatic, perhaps. Yeah, you're, uh, you're bang on, spot on. Um, I suppose dream, decide, do, repeat is more of a mantra that I'm trying to get leaders, managers, individual contributors to contemplate. So two things happen uh, to answer your question. First, if you recall uh, recently, Google and Apple, uh, whoever the emoji gods are, um, designed and, and thus implemented a new emoji called face palm, which is this, you know, your hand to your face. And it's sort of like if you're 
anyone out there for whatever reason is into the Simpsons, it's sort of the book, the Homer Simpson dope kind of thing, right? So I see that. I see people doing the face palm to their, to their, uh, the palm to their face and say, oh, that's so simple. I, I, I can't, I don't know why I, I haven't thought of that. Like, I'm so busy. So it's like, oh, and, and it's just sitting there right in front of your face, right? It's like, Hmm, I knew that, but I didn't. And thank you for reminding me of the importance. And then, uh, quite frankly, particularly the open thinking concept of dream side do repeat. Yeah, you've got skeptics. You know, just to your point, Stuart, it, there's the folks that say, you know, what do you mean? Dreaming, dream is, dreaming is for sissies. Dreaming is not for me. Um, what's the point? I, I, I mean to look busy. I'm in the corner office. I have to always be barking orders or... I, I'm, you know, I'm always late for meetings because I've got so many meetings. So that's, that's their mindset. And, and I don't think you're going, I don't think I'm going to, any one of us are going to change the mindset and psyche of leaders who ostensibly believe that the only reason for their paycheck is to look and act and be busy. Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do you think that leaders were ever more thoughtful? I'm saying lead, leaders of corporations in the 1960s or 70s. Do you think they were less addicted to, I mean, I suppose there was less ways of being busy, but uh, surely they were action-oriented as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no, no doubt in my mind that action and thus applied thinking is important, and it's always been important. You have to get stuff done, or either you're going to get fired, terminated, or someone's going to pass you over. So, again, I'm not subscribing to a world where there's no action. But, uh, you know, some of our... Our thinkers, 50 colleagues, will know the name Milt Friedman. And, and as economic advisor to Reagan, Milt Friedman introduced what uh, some have called the world's dumbest idea, which is shareholder return. So why do I bring that up in the midst of talking about thinking? Well, in the early 80s, when the mindset fixated on and has continued to uh, fixate on shareholder return, particularly for the for-profit companies, what ultimately occurs is this propensity to act on the need to increase that shareholder return through dividends or stock price valuation fluctuation, playing, game playing, if you will, if you're Roger Martin. And, and that becomes the game. That becomes the fixation. That becomes the action. So everyone is, is uh, incentivized as well as uh, puts their effort to the action of just trying to play that particular game. So if that's occurring, where's the, where's the dreaming and the creative thought or the better decision-making for planet or for community or for the health of the employee, the engagement, the purpose? And, you know, uh, he's retiring this year, but a chap that actually did it well and thought about his organization's culture, who thought about the purpose of why they're in business and what could they change, and then changed the way in which they were uh, impacting it, their people and stakeholders, so community customers, shareholders, et cetera, uh, through better thinking, slow thinking, if you will, was Paul Pullman, CEO of Unilever. And, and say what you will on certain things, and there's lots of critics out there about Paul, but when he showed up in uh, January of 2009 and, and told the street that there'll be no more guidance, he said, we're here for the long term. We're changing our thinking. We're changing our culture. We're changing our purpose. And, and ultimately implemented uh, a whole new regime of, of how they're going to operate. You know, that's 
I'm interested in leaders and organizations like that that sort of have taken a step back and, and said to themselves, why are we here? How do we operate? And maybe there's a better way of thinking. I mean, are there cultural differences in companies' propensity to embrace these ideas? I mean, I'm thinking of, um, I was reading about a Japanese company uh, which has a 200-year time horizon. And it seems to me that if you were culturally stereotyped, you would say that uh, Japanese companies and perhaps Chinese companies are more likely to uh, venerate thinking uh, above action. I think that's a, that's a fair comment. Uh, and I would agree, you know, uh, whether it's Japanese or Korean or uh, Chinese uh, in the in the Asian world, there is a there's a foundation in California to sort of uh, split the answer called the Long Now Foundation. And, and the Long Now Foundation is probably the best example in North America of a group of people that are trying to get others to see that we are here for 10,000 years. And, and you know, thus their notion of a 10,000 year clock uh, to, to do good for the people that come before us or come after us, I'm sorry. That is inherent, I argue, in sort of Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Asian culture. They're, they're here as much as they are for their children today, but you know, seven generations of children from tomorrow. And, and, and sometimes I think the myopic view of the Western world on back to shareholder return and growth for the quarter, you know, exacerbates this poor thinking, this, this addiction to action. And that's just sad for, for many of the stakeholders that aren't in it just for the fact that there needs to be EBITDA increases and, uh, and revenue and or share price uh, increase. Are you optimistic that things are, are going to change or heading in the right direction? Well, uh, if I was being honest, I'd say the worst is still yet to come. I mean, the the rise of populism, just by example, from a political perspective in the West, has also created um, a propensity to think less. And the shotgun um, comprehension of policy, or lack thereof, is, is doing no good to the creative and or good critical thinking required to better our planet, our society, our community, our lives. And it doesn't matter where you go, whether you're looking in Germany or Switzerland or, or the UK or of course America, or even Canada, where I live, one of our provinces, Ontario, uh, just elected a premier who's a populist premier. So wherever you go, there's, there's this odd movement that's occurring which is, I believe, linked to the fact that people are just taking uh, a lack of credible uh, and thoughtful policy, or in fact, a lying and made-up policy for, for truth, and glomming onto that because there's this new hope. And that new hope is a falsity, and that falsehood is creating this manifestation of insanity. So I, I don't mean to be a, you know, a apocalyptic naysayer and a, a negative Nelly here, but I don't think it's going to get better first. I think it needs to get worse. And at that point, our junction will be much like we've had junctions over the past 2000 years. It's a demarcation point and the world will rise again and say, huh, 
well, we should probably do this better now. And in unison, we will. Now, it's interesting, at the start of our conversation, you mentioned uh, Frederick Taylor and scientific management, uh, which dates back to the beginning of the 20th century. It's, it's amazing the impact uh, Frederick Taylor's ideas uh, have had and the kind of the influence they still have on the way man managers view the world. You know, scientific principles of management gave birth to command and control, uh, arguably, that um, eerily started in World War I and then certainly cemented itself in World War II. And when we came out of World War II, uh, you know, we don't really have another, well, we do, but not a lot of folks are, are implementing a new management scheme. And, 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 and then you even unpack that onion a bit more, Stuart, and you think about schools. So the, the sage on the stage has been the model since Bologna and our first university. And we just continue to perpetuate the fact that, you know, that sage over there, she or he knows best, I will listen to the wizard. Um, but, but really, to me, collective intelligence, learning together, uh, personal learning networks, the way in which that we can uh, grow together uh, is, is really a necessity if we are to grow. Where's best practice? You must encounter individuals and organizations who have got a, a more reflective and responsive mindset when it comes to thinking. Can you give me an example or two of examples that have inspired you? Well, I'll give you one that's probably odd to listeners because you wonder why he's bringing in something up like this that's a no-name and everyone always expects the Amazons and Googles and so forth. But there's this little millinery in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, and a millinery, for those that aren't aware, is a, a, a place that makes hats. And you're like, what is he on about here? Well, millineries are a, a time practice tradition from decades ago. We're talking sort of the 1700s. And when you enter into a traditional millinery, for me at least, when I visited the first and then a couple more just to back up my, my research, it is this time-honed practice of the three types of thinking that I'm, I'm really professing uh, folks need to contemplate a little more. And, and at least in this case, there's a shop in Toronto called Lilliput Hats, uh, who outfitted incidentally a bunch of hats for, uh, for Terry's wedding uh, recently. Anyway. It, when you go into millinery of Lilliput hats, there's this, um, it's a beehive of activity. And in this case, there's about seven of them that are all making hats. And we're talking about um, traditional hat making, which is steaming and felts and feathers and uh, laces and colors from every imaginable part of the world, the smell of creativity, the hive of people working together, the decision-making that has to occur because some hats are due before other hats. And it's also a shop, so you can walk in off the street and so people are, are buying hats. So all three elements of thinking, creative, critical, and thus the doing, the applied part, are, are occurring. And it dawned on me after, after entering Lilliput Hats that we might take uh, a page out of a lot of the artists and, and we, we started chatting about chefs earlier, right? So 
a chef is an artist, a milliner is an artist, a musician is an artist, uh, a painter is an artist. And when we start thinking about some of the arts and how they operate, how they take time to reflect, how they take time to fact gather and to weave through truths, how they make good, solid decisions before they press record on the studio, or even when they make a mistake, they have the capability and the disposition to return and to say, oh, you know what, maybe we could do it differently next time, or maybe we should try it this way. So I urge people not necessarily to, to always study the Amazons and Googles, although there are fine examples here and there in the quote corporate world. But if you do kind of have the time to enter into an artist shop, whatever art you define as one you'd like to investigate, that's where I think we can, we can glean some nuggets of respite and hope. Well done, Pontefractor. Open to hats and open to think. Thank you very much. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Stuart. Have a great one. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. <laughs>